I'm Jeff Sturtz, and this is Wide Awake, a podcast offering biblical insight and encouragement. I recently watched a video featuring an Adobe employee. Adobe is the company that makes a lot of media tools for creators, such as Photoshop and Adobe Acrobat. And the person who was doing the interview said that he held the title of Adobe Evangelist. This person, Terry, said, My goal is to travel around the world and make sure that everyone I talk to or see or have seen me in a video understands what's possible with Creative Suite, referring to Adobe's creative software package. He's an evangelist telling a good report about the great features of that software. I thought that it was a great title and a great mission for that job. In our last episode, we looked at the first part of understanding the gospel, specifically as it relates to life, death, and faith. If you haven't listened to it, I encourage you to do so. In this episode, we're going to continue our exploration of the gospel and why it's worth believing. The word gospel comes from the Greek euangelion, which means good news or good report. If you looked at the word, you would see it, and it would look like another word that we've just mentioned above, evangelist. But when we're talking about the gospel, the euangelion, in the Christian context of the word, we're talking about a very specific good report involving a very specific set of facts. Not software in this case, but something much more significant. Paul, one of the apostles commissioned by Jesus, writes to the people in Corinth explaining and laying out these facts. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And now he's going to go and lay out the information, the core facts surrounding the gospel. He says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. So there's a lot to unpack here, but what we're going to see from one of the great evangelizers, Paul, is a basic argument that he makes. And he makes this argument not only here, but in other books and in many other settings throughout his ministry. The argument is this. Something happened in history, in time and space. There was an actual event. Second, this thing that happened was predicted or prophesied to happen and preceded by many other things that happened in time and space. Three, this thing happened for a reason. And four, because it actually happened, and account of this specific reason, we can have hope and assurance about our eternal destiny. That's his basic argument. Something real happened in history that gives us assurance of our eternal destiny. So what he lays out here to the Corinthian church is the thing that happened. It's a great thing, which is why it's called the gospel. So, what happened? Walking through 1 Corinthians, we see a few things. Number one, Christ, which is the word for Messiah, died. Significant? Not by itself, no. 
If that's all that happened, it wouldn't be much of a happening. It would be sad, and sadly normal. Second, though, there's a reason for why he died. For our sins. Okay, that's a little bit more significant. His death was not just death because he got old or sick or because he was executed. His death, according to Paul, was for a purpose. His death was destined. It was meaningful. It was to die for our sins. Or as we would see in other Paul's writings, as a substitute for our sin. Significant? Well, it depends. If I said, my buddy Bill Johnson died for our sins, that wouldn't mean anything because who's Bill Johnson? What gives him the right to be the one to die on behalf of sinners? How do we know that his death would work to remove our sin? So it's significant in that somebody named the Messiah, the anointed one of God, died as a substitute for sinners. That's a very bold claim. But it's not enough right there for us to give much attention to it. So what happened next? Well, he was buried. We don't need to spend a lot of time on this one right here, but suffice it to say that a person executed by Roman death professionals, by crucifixion, having had their body then released to non-Romans for burial, after it was speared open to release the blood and water that would normally pool around the heart in such an execution, and then wrapped and laid in a tomb for three days, is dead. This person is dead and buried. Significant? Yes, again, but not completely. So what next? Okay, strap in for this one. He was raised from the dead three days later. So the very dead person is now very alive. Stop and consider this claim for a moment. No one ever, ever in history had died, has died, been dead for three days, and has come back to life again, except one. And that one is Lazarus, whom Jesus himself raised from the dead. There are a couple of other instances in the Old Testament where people came back to life through a prophet's ministry very shortly after their death, and there's a small handful of instances in Jesus' day. Again, most significantly, Lazarus. But all these people died again. Here, we have somebody who came back to life with no outside visible force and then spent time with people after his death. Significant? Yes. Think about it. If I said, hey, don't let the cat out of the bag, but I've learned to cheat death. Yeah, I know. And I can teach you how. You'd think you're a raving maniac. That's stupid. Nobody can cheat death. Death happens to everybody and no one escapes it. And you'd be right. That would be like the Sith Lord conversation between Palpatine and Anakin. Kind of creepy. And to think that a mere man could ascend to such ability on his own and wield such power seems rather frightening. We know this instinctively. Dead people don't come back to life. They're dead. People seem to love zombie stories for some reason and legends of people who have returned, but they're just stories, and they carry no significant meaning. Here, Paul is saying, the one who is called the anointed one of God claim to have power over sin and death, and then he proved it by rising again from the dead. But he doesn't stop there. He then records that Jesus didn't just fade into the mist or leave clues like a Bigfoot kind of character. He went and spoke to his close disciple, Peter. Okay, well, maybe Peter saw something. But then he appeared to what Paul calls the Twelve. That name was given to Jesus' original group of followers. Now, we know Judas wasn't there because he went out and hanged himself after Jesus' betrayal. 
but the name of the group is still called the Twelve. So the eleven remaining all saw him at the same time. One is even documented as having skepticism, having heard from some of the others, but then sees Jesus with the others all at once. And that's the key. You see, there's, there's such a thing as mass hysteria. That's where people hear about things, such, you know, like a rumor, and then the whole group together gets all worked up and thinks that something is going on, but it's only a fear, a collective fear of what might be happening. They perceive collectively that some threat exists, and they perceive it as real. That's mass hysteria. But there isn't such a thing as mass hallucination, where everyone in a group sees the same thing, can attest to the same thing, and document the details about the same thing separately, but yet consistently. That isn't a thing. It doesn't exist. If they can testify to seeing the same thing, are consistent about having seen the same thing, continue to keep their story straight when questioned or, say, threatened or pressured, we don't call that a hallucination. We call that a fact. It's what we use today in a court of law. If five people all said that they saw a crime and they can describe the person, the weapon, the circumstances, etc. consistently, then that is considered fact to the point that we will even put someone to death based on that testimony. Here we have in this account the testimony of 11 people who, by the way, all go to their death with that account and with that testimony saying the same thing. But it doesn't stop there. Paul documents that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time and tells what we would consider the most intellectual church that Paul ever writes to, the Corinthians, that the majority of these people, these 500 people, are still alive, though a few have died. He is telling them, if you want to ask someone whether Jesus raised from the dead, there's at least 251 of them still alive who saw him at the same time, and probably more people than that. Then, Paul says he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and then Paul himself says personally to himself. This event, the resurrection that happened in time and space, is one of the most documented, eyewitnessed events of human history. Let's just compare this event for a moment with another ancient event that happened about 50 years prior to Jesus even being born. According to historians, Julius Caesar, in 49 BC, disobeyed the Roman Senate, crossed the Rubicon River with his army, the Rubicon being the northern boundary of Italy, and by doing so, committed what the Roman government considered insurrection and treason and effectively declared war on the Roman Senate. This fact is not under question by historians. And yet, this fact has far less documentation than the written accounts of Jesus rising from the dead. Unfortunately, and I might add quite conspicuously, the resurrection documentation has been relegated to a religious belief. New Testament scholar and PhD Craig Blomberg writes about this comparative history of these events and says, A good illustration of the way many biblical scholars or theologians are simply unfamiliar with how ancient history writing worked has been exposed by University of Ottawa historian Paul Merkley. Many people have cited Julius Caesar's crossing of the Rubicon River as he returned from Gaul to Italy in 49 BC as a model of an incontrovertible historical fact from the ancient world that also had historical significance. With that deed, Caesar committed himself to civil war and the course of the Roman Empire was forever altered. 
What is often overlooked is that we are not absolutely sure of the date of the crossing or the location of the Rubicon. And as with the Gospels, we have four accounts of the event from later historians. And I'm going to butcher these names. Velius, Paterculus, Plutarch, Suentanius, and Apian. Only the first of these was ever born before the mid-first century after Christ. All apparently relied on one eyewitness source, that of Asinius Polio, which has disappeared without a trace. Yet the four accounts vary at least as much as the Gospels do when reporting the same event. One writer, Suentonius, attributes Caesar's decision to cross the Rubicon to seeing, quote, an apparition of superhuman size and beauty, who was, quote, sitting on the riverbank playing a reed pipe. Compare that to the documentation of Luke, the gospel writer, who was alive at the same time as these hundreds of eyewitnesses. He's writing the intro to his account for his friend and says this in Luke 1.1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke's biographical account of Jesus, followed up by his biographical account of Jesus and the apostles in Acts, are written by a person who documented firsthand eyewitnesses of these things within only a few years of when it happened. It's like someone today writing an account of what happened on 9-11 in New York City or at the Pentagon. We would not say that those persons are far removed from those events. But of course, with the Gospels, we have eyewitness accounts of people like John or Matthew who were there when these things happened. Now, before we get too far with all of this, the point here isn't to offer a complete apologetic or a complete defense of the events of Jesus' life. We wouldn't have the time here, and there are ample resources for that. Instead, we simply need to see that Paul is showing that the Christian faith and hope rests in actually documented events, not mystical ideas or legends. This fact, and the fact that it was someone who claimed deity who rose from the dead, separates Christianity from every other faith in the world. There is no other faith whose figurehead or leader was a human being who interacted with others and was touched and hugged and seen by other human beings, who died and then rose again from the dead. You can hope all you want that you'll come back to life or be welcomed into some eternal bliss after death, but Christians can say, I know I will, because our Savior did. He raised others by God's power, and He Himself was raised by God's power. I know that I too will be raised. That is at the center of the good news of Jesus Christ. I'll mention one other thing here that comes from Paul's message to the Corinthians, and that is this. These things didn't happen in a vacuum. He reminds them that these things happened, quote, in accordance with the scriptures, according to the revelation that the Jews had received and were told hundreds of years prior to these events. He's telling them the gospel is fulfilled prophecy and that it is historically rooted. Again, rather than it being a mystic fairy tale or good campfire story, It is a real series of witnessed events that accord with real documents written by real people in time and space in history. So, backing up, we said in our last episode that we have a choice as humans. First, whether to believe that there is life after death, and second, whether a certain body of understanding is worth believing in and therefore acting upon. 
This belief in a reward and the action that produces it is what is called faith. So the question for us is, is the Christian good news something that we should believe? I would submit to you that as you pursue the facts and read the accounts and study the scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New, you will see that the prophesied Jesus is who he says he is. And if that is the case, then the euangelion, the gospel, is the best news and most worthy of our attention. That's why Paul writes to the Romans and he says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In the gospel, we have hope of life after death. And as you will read, escape from God's wrath poured out on sin. Death by itself is a fearful thing. I don't want to die. Nobody does. But death for the Christian doesn't have to be fearful. Another writer in scripture, the writer of Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. As a Christian, I do not have to fear death. It has been conquered, and that victory over sin and death is freely bestowed on every person who puts their faith in Jesus their hope for reward in Jesus. Again, we don't have time in this setting to offer a comprehensive defense of the gospel, but I want to leave you with something Paul said when he was making a gospel appeal to unbelieving strangers in Athens. He said, And he, speaking of God, made from one man, speaking of Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and their boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. There is a spiritual aspect to all of this. That is, we can argue till the cows come home that Jesus rose from the dead, that the facts surrounding his life and death and resurrection were prophesied and so on. But Paul makes the point that human beings were created by God with an innate sense to seek after God. That while in sinful darkness that shrouds our minds and heart, we still, as he pictures, are designed to feel our way toward him and find him, and that he is not actually that far from any one of us. I believe from this that even when a pinprick of the light of truth shines on the human heart, there is a part of us that says, yes, this is something that I want to know more about. And that something keeps pulling us till we find God. Now, we're really good at suppressing and shutting out the truth. We are born professionals at shutting things out that we don't want to acknowledge. I mean, just look at the average American person's debt or their eating habits. We are really good at that. But if, having heard God's word, you say, yes, there's something there, something that I should pursue, don't shut that out. Don't turn that away. Follow it and see where it leads. I hope you do. Of course, there's so much more that I could say and that we could explore here, but we'll doubtless continue to come back to this as we have occasion. I hope in the meantime that you continue to dig into the scriptures yourself and explore what I and many, many others who have experienced God believe to be his revealed word to us. So I hope you do so. 
Thanks for listening. If you don't know what it means to know God personally, please don't hesitate to reach out. And we'd love to show you from the Bible how you can know God. You can email me at info at wileygospel.org. And if you're not plugged into and regularly attending a local church in the Wiley area, I invite you to come out and visit us. You can find the times and location on our website, wileygospel.org. I look forward to sharing with you more encouragement from God's word here on Wide Awake.